choose your reading carefully. In my book, I have eight strategies on how to write to engage readers. And it turns out almost all of those have been shown by research to be more memorable. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how human minds create value from information and author of the book Thriving on Overload. Every week, I speak to incredible people who share how they use unlimited information to create massive value and keep ahead of accelerating change. If you want to learn more about this valuable topic, go to thrivingonoverload.com, which includes podcast episodes and transcripts, excerpts from the book, articles, You can sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to help you improve your habits. And there are also details on the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which guides you through the journey of amplifying your information productivity. That's thrivingonoverload.com. Building on my work on Thriving on Overload, I'm also focusing on the theme of humans plus AI to help massively augment your productivity using artificial intelligence. If you want access to a raft of resources, frameworks, guides, and tutorials, just go to humansplustechnology.com. If you find this episode useful, please do take just 10 seconds to hop into iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to this to give the podcast a rating or a quick review. These are all free resources that would be massively helpful to me to make this project feasible and also help others to make this easier to find. On this episode, we learn from Bill Burchard. Bill is a writing coach to leading thinkers and the author of many, many books. Most recently, they just released Writing for Impact. Eight Secrets from Science That Will Fire Up Your Readers' Brains, published by HarperCollins. You can find more on his work at BillBurchard.com. In this episode, you will learn about the eight lessons on writing for impact, clarifying thinking, better comprehension, the power of surprise, and many, many other valuable lessons. Keep listening to learn from Bill's great insights. Bill, it's awesome to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So your recent book, Writing for Impact, tells us about how we can write so that it actually registers. That's and right. And I suppose the corollary of that, that uh, if you can write well, then people can read better. And it's, it's interesting just how much of the useful information we get comes in through words. So we'd love to... I suppose just to hear the, the backstory, how did you come to, to write this book? Yeah, you know, I've been writing my whole life. And uh, I started, though, uh, with a biology degree and never used it. And it was sort of um, the logical circling back um, toward the, the latter part of my career to say, what does science say about writing? And I poked around a little bit and, and one thing led to another. And it turned out there's there's this mountain of research that looks at how does the mind react to language? How does it react to metaphor? Does it, does it react to simple versus complex sentences? Does it react to, to story? And um, quickly, I started to see that from, from that, you could infer how to write better. Fantastic. So this is, you've been digging into the, the neuroscience, how our brains function. And at a higher level, I, I think you part of one of your early realizations was this is around motivation right so how right. does what's so what is the, when you are writing what are you trying to achieve in the mind of your reader well in in my formulation as i as i've uh, as i've uh, explained it in the book is i'm trying to help readers move from being informed and educated to moving up a level to be engaged and um that is 
as as it ends up being defined, being motivated. Um, it it turns out that everything that we respond to, every stimuli in our life, whether it's food or drink or it's sex or new friends or shelter, it's all evaluated in this part of the brain called the reward circuit. And in that circuit, sees a stimulus, it assesses it for value, it decides whether it wants to pursue it. If it consumes it and, it, and it's and it's uh, pleased, then you get a little shot of of uh, natural opioids from that, and that encourages you to do it again. So it's so it turns out that principle is is applicable not just to to motivation of of people to get them to do the right things when it comes to eating, drinking, and so on, but it it gets it it uh, it applies as well to getting them to consume words. So consuming words. And, consu- and and information is very similar to con- consuming food. So, so throughout, I'd like to sort of take both sides, the reader perspective and the writer perspective. So what's the, the lesson for a reader from that insight around the, the reward mechanism of, of reading? How do you, if you're, if you're reading, is there a way, for example, if things are not written as well, that you can make it more rewarding? Or there are ways in which you can approach your reading so that it is uh, something which is more stimulating to you? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I think it's just it, the lesson here is um, choose your reading carefully. If you want to remember, if you want to have, have information have an impact on you, you have to choose information that's surprising, that's, that's, that's simplified so the author gets to, at the gist, so it has a story to it. Um, all the techniques that are important in writing to engage are also important to making sure that that you that you absorb that information. It turns out that a, in my book, I, the, I have eight strategies on, on how to write to engage readers. And it turns out almost all of those have been shown by research to be more memorable for for the reader. So um, so you want to. Yeah, you, it's pretty much a lesson if you want to choose your information carefully. I mean, you can choose pretty dry stuff. Who wants to read that anyway? But the interesting thing is, if you read the real dry stuff, you're not going to remember it as well. And that's and that's in part because the author didn't drive your reward circuit, didn't get the dopamine flowing, didn't get the natural opioids flowing. They didn't get you psyched. They, they didn't get you. They didn't get you hooked on a story. And if you're not hooked, then your your ability to rec- uh, remember that is is going to go downhill. Well, I'd like to dig down into a teaser of those eight uh, strategies in a, in a moment. But just to to come back to that, can so of course, as you say, you choose those who uh, write better in order to be able to uh, essentially you know take that information in. But can we, as a reader, perhaps imbue our own? Uh, excitement or surprise or other things to be able to make something which are drier to to read better, whatever the quality of the writing? Well, I think that's a question of why you're reading it. Uh, you've talked many times before about making sure you have a purpose and, and then having all these filters, et cetera, and framing to decide what you're looking for. I can tell you, I was very engaged in in over 400 science articles to get this this book written and why was i engaged because i knew what those contributed to to the understanding i needed to to write for readers so if if you know what you're looking for then very dry writing absolutely can can be engaging i i would say that's the the major lesson there is there, are there any sort of i suppose other techniques just to be able to keep that in mind, keep that purpose in mind as you're reading to be able to uh, to make it more engaging? 
Yeah, you know, I'm for the last 25 years, I've been writing books, my own and for others. And and I think that it, it does. It goes back to the purpose. Uh, uh, you know, my the books are a big project. Uh, they have a they have a broad scope. They have a big message. You have to have a purpose for those. You have to have a, a goal for those. You have to have buckets of information that that you're looking for, at least at least in, in the beginning, you have a thesis and, and you say, well, I can break the thesis into six, eight, ten parts. And and then you're going to be looking. It's it's a treasure hunt, really. You know, it's uh, you, you're out there. You're out there looking for the stuff to fill all those buckets. And and I think that that then becomes very motivational. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to say, I love re- research uh, because, you know, it's always well, I'm curious, <laughs> Uh, always wanting to learn, but when I've uh, learned, trying to learn a particular thing, it's that issue of, and you know, particularly when there's well wealth of information there, it's like, ah, how deep do I go? How quickly can I skim? And but always just sort of searching for the nuggets. I think you know, as you you've used that metaphor of the treasure treasure hunting, yes, as, uh, as you're engaged absolutely. in reading. And you know, and I think the next step, you know, to sort of jump to where you know um, my book. Yes. takes us is my book is writing for impact but yeah. but you know when i was writing it i when i got to the second draft i went through three really major drafts and when i get to the second one i had four friends and colleagues read it and one of them came back to me and said you know what about two-thirds of the way through the book i realized the the book's more about thinking than it is about writing which, which is a bit of an overstatement i think but but you get the point i mean how do you think so that you you make it easier for your your readers to be engaged and and in the book, I have a lot of a lot of different techniques that 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 if you use them, you are going to transform these buckets of information that you're taking in. What what I like to think of as a is a as a bucket full of scrap lead and 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 transmute it into gold nuggets. There are a bunch of different techniques, and I use these all the time with with clients that I work with on books. I mean, the first one, for example, is. Hey, we got to get this simple. We have we have to figure out what the simple one liner is. I know that sounds very old, but um, sort of the elevator pitch. But you have to you have to you have to winnow it. You have to take away some of the clutter. You probably have two or three ideas. They're all glommed together. How do you pull them apart and say which one am I going to focus on? For for my book, um, writing for impact. I mean, in the end, what was my message? My my message is reward your reader. Three words: just reward your reader. But I'll give you another example. I, I did a book ten years ago, and it was it was a book on how to write books, and um, focusing pretty much on the steps you need to go through the research, the drafts, the, the 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 development of the idea, and so forth. And and my working thesis was for a long time was practice makes perfect. Okay, that's sort of cliche, but that was my work is, working thesis. Thesis: you have the set of steps, you keep practicing them, you keep iterating them. Eventually, you're going to get the the book to where you're you're you want it to be. But hey, I was on the spinning bike one morning and I realized that that really wasn't accurate enough. So you've got to like say, well, if practice makes perfect isn't right, what is right? And it's and it and it dawned on me. This seems such like like such a small thing, but it has a huge impact on on how you process the information and give insights to readers i i decided it was process makes perfect so it's the process that you had to go through follow that process that would make the the book perfect and so all of a sudden i could transform everything i was saying all of those buckets sort of had a new gloss over them it's like the reason i'm talking about this the reason i'm talking about each of these issues say research or outlining or or uh, first drafting etc is because I'm explaining the process to you to make this happen. 
So, it, you know, that's the first thing to simplify. Yeah, as uh, in my book, I point out that, yeah, many, many people have said, uh, you know, write in order to think better. But in right. fact, you have to write well in order to think better. <laughs> and that's, I right. think that's, uh, you know, to the point of, you know, the point of your book, if you're writing for impact, then clearly you are thinking well. You must have structured your thinking into a way that can have impact. So right. if we at least by the third draft. draft, at least by the third draft. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, that's it. It takes work. It's not. Yes, it's not it as if does. we immediately necessarily have crystal clear thinking. We have to go through that process of getting ourselves exactly. to clear thinking, which brings us to to better writing. So, right. can we spin through your eight? Recommendations yeah. or give a yeah. teaser to uh, we, we, to uh, yeah, we certainly can. So they yeah, can and know I, what they'll find in your book. Yes, yes, and I, I would say you know it in looking at the 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 areas of your interest um, and and your listeners' interests. I think all of these are about amplifying cognition. I mean, how do these a help you think better and b allow people to um, absorb the information to comprehend better. And so the first one is, and they're S, they're all, they all begin with an S. They're my eight S's to, to hopefully help people remember them. But the first one is to keep it simple. You know, shorter words, shorter senses, shorter ideas, stripped of all the all the ornamentation. The second one is keep it specific. That's, get some specifics in there that, so that people have a concrete idea of, of uh, what, what you're saying. So got some great examples of that. The, the third one is keep it surprising. Okay. Novelty. That's that's real important. I think sometimes when you're you're trying to educate people about a subject, you forget that you really have to also make it surprising as you're you're writing about something that they they might already know a lot about. The the fourth one is actually keep just on the surprising one. Yeah. So let's say you've got something which I mean you're you're trying to find something surprising because then that means it's useful and interesting. But let's say right. it is something which is more mundane. So how can you bring in surprise into that? Well, one of the ways you can do it is 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 apply a metaphor to it. Um, how about the book, The Perfect Storm, or the book, The Black Swan, or the book, Tipping Point? All of a sudden, it's like, you know, when you dig down, these aren't altogether new subjects. Um, they're treated in a contemporary, deeper way that applies to all of us today. But all of a sudden, you tag them with with a uh, with a new form of looking at it, and that's a surprise. So, so that's absolutely one way to do it. The other thing, of course, is surprising data, uh, a surprising story, um, surprising uh, a surprising combination of two words. Uh, one one that I put in my book that I happen to like. Maybe it's just me. Is I, I visited a battlefield in the Western United States, um, and and they were characterizing the the nature of of the soldier's life in just after the the U.S. Civil War, and what did they characterize it? They called it glittering misery. Well, when you put, whenever do you put glittering and misery together? But when you put them together, you kind of get an idea as to what that means. So, that, so surprise can just be in word combination. And anybody, anybody, particularly in a second draft, can say, "Wait a minute, this this is just not quite doing it for me." Can I apply one of these S's? And that's one of them. Can I apply one of these? Just some word combination or metaphor, etc. Can I can I do that and then and therefore engage my readers, get them to comprehend it better? Just just one thing, pulling pulling back, and this this might be, I, I presume, is relevant to quite a few of your points. Is around metaphor, the power of metaphor, right? Now thinking where, and that, that's something which I'd like to dig into more myself and something which I've touched on in, in Thriving and Overload, but I think is there's um, 
so much that we can do to improve our own thinking, as well as to com- communicate that thinking, oh, yeah. to draw in the right metaphors. And finding the right metaphors is a quest. It's uh, you've got to find the right one, which is, you know, has more. C- you know, every metaphor is wrong because they're different things. But you're trying to bring right. out what is the what evokes uh, something useful out of that. And so, just can you comment on that metaphor and that bigger frame of what you're doing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, metaphor. I mean, I get. Of course, I knew it was important when I started as a writer, but it became more and more apparent with the research just how powerful metaphor is. Uh, some research shows that that a sentence with a metaphor in it, just simple sentences with metaphors in it. Um, I wish I could cite one from the research, but simple sentences with a metaphor that that says the same thing as a literal phrase are are are. Um, understood better. I mean, experts said better than those with literal phrases. And, and you know, what this dates to is our being children. Everything we learned in language, we learned hands-on. I mean, from the time before we could talk, we were mouthing things, we were handling things, everything was hands-on. And so ultimately, when we started to learn words, and not just metaphors, when we started to learn words, they all were connected to the parts of the brain that had to do with handling and experiencing things. So um, when I talk about keeping it specific, why do you want to keep it specific? Because when you keep it specific, not only the language processing part of the brain uh, activates, which is just along the left temple, but and just on the left side, not bilateral like so many so many uh, brain functions, but the the components for the motor circuits activate, which are like a hairband across the top of your head. The sensory circuits activate, another hairband just, just to the rear of the motor circuits. The, the auditory, the olfactory, the visual circuits in the back of your head. When you engage all those senses, the brain is like, as I like to say, is, is, goes into a full brain buzz. And, and not only that, not only that, but, but the, the specifics can activate the muscles as well. So you can have an activation with this is just using specifics instead of just dry abstract wording. You've got the the language circuits running, you've got the 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 motor and sensory circuits running and you even have the tissues and the, the the muscles running. And and in one example I'll just give you one experiment on this one this one I can remember off the top of my head. John Stins and a global team of scientists asked people to read sentences while they were standing on a force plate. And this force plate is like a bathroom scale and measured the, the pressure of their stance. And they, uh, for example, let's see if I can remember this. I gave them three sentences, one with low effort, medium, uh, low effort, no effort, and high effort. One was the nurse admires a patient, no effort. Another one was the nurse lifts the patient, high effort. A, a third one was the, the nurse lifts the plant, low effort. And what happened to all these people standing on the force plate? They actually shifted their stance forward, backward, and sideward in proportion to the to the um, effort implied in those sentences. So when you use specifics, you are translating for people into v- very tangible, into a very tangible feeling, what you're saying. And that, that it does wonders to aid comprehension. It also hap- happens to drive the reward circuit quite handily. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan 
so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. In a way, that's also about the um, thinking is in our body. So that we are, you know, essentially, it's not just our brain, that, you know, we are enacting that in our, in, you know, the full extent of our, our body and how we express that. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue to the fourth S, which is keep right. it stirring. Uh, when people experience emotion, they usually experience it in the body. It's it's in the brain as well, but they experience it in the body, and they react to that in, in the body. So emotion, very important. I mean, a, a lot of serious like business subjects, you think, ah, well, I shouldn't use emotion in 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 that case. But emotion is integral to most words, except the most basic words. And you need to use that to your advantage. You know, choose the right words so you have the have the right emotion. Um, one experiment that I that I think is fascinating on this is that I um, there were some researchers that had people read about a fictional city called Addison that was having a, a crime problem, and they and they in one case these were identical identical write ups about 150 words long, and they had the statistics of murders et cetera. And, and in one case, they referred to the crime wave as a beast. And in the other case, they re, uh, referred to the crime wave as a virus. And then they asked people to recommend interventions to deal with the crime. Well, what happened is m- most of the people who read the uh, version with the beast suggested more policing and, and more enforcement. And most of the people who read the version with virus suggested more more intervention intervention to prevent crime to begin with in other words dealing with social pathologies and and that was true even after um looking at people's political affiliation in other words it was the it was the metaphor and the and the um and the emotion attached to that metaphor that determined how people made decisions. So if you are if you are writing and you want people to make a decision, of course you can you can see the room for manipulation here. But let's assume you have high integrity and you want to present it forthrightly. You want to choose the right word, the right metaphor, and the right emotion so you so that you accurately accurately portray um, what the situation is to make a decision on. It's a great story. So, yeah, let me run through the the, the rest of them. Please. I won't be so long winded. Um, so then the next one is is keep it seductive, which is not what you initially think. Seductive in the alluring way. Anticipation is what that means. Build anticipation, which of course is 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 um, integral to fiction, um, suspense and anticipation. But but you know this is funny. Even even. The, the most basic writing can build anticipation. And how do you do that? You use a good topic sentence. And I thought, oh my goodness, the 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 uh, English teachers are are vindicated. Topic sentences are important. And it's not just because it helps you integrate the following information with a with an overall um, introduction to that information, but it's because you set up a little bit of the anticipation. You promise something and then you give the payoff. And that, in fact, is rewarding in the brain. Believe it or not, there's a dopamine release from that. They've actually measured it. And then the the next one is uh, keep it smart, in which case I mean in, insightful, leaps of insight. There's a huge amount of research that's gone on of, about what happens when you when people have what, this is what the scientists call it, an aha moment. They actually call it that. What happens? Well, there's a whole part of the right side of the brain that lights up, lights up that is unique, and there's a surge of action 
in the reward circuit. In other words, we like bright ideas. I mean, we just like bright ideas. So if you're writing and you want to communicate, you want to aspire to those brighter ideas. It's it's people people are going to be turned on by that. Of course, we can't have one in every sentence, but we want to aspire to that. So the just, next just session- on that, well, actually, just on that. So I think you might be referring to the same research that I. Uh, wrote about in uh, Thrive and Overload by Mark. Yes, uh, Cunio- I am John Cunios and Mark Beeman. Uh, exactly, and which is which is fascinating in terms of uh, trying to uncover some of the ways in which the brain has. Uh, we can see in the brain how we reach that aha moment. Exactly. So exactly. I'm just thinking about how how to actually bring that to bear in in writing. So one way I'm just you know musing out loud would be to um, set up. The clues which then the person could uncover, well, enabling them to make their own discovery process. Mm-hmm. Another way might be just to, um, well, I actually interested you. What, how, how would you set that up? How do you bring that aha moment? I mean, because the smart, yeah, 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 yeah. This is a this is a great insight which I'm presenting you. But do you try right. to evoke the aha moment for the? A listener, right? So the reader, right, right? Well, yeah, yeah. The first thing, I'll, uh, which I found very interesting, I'll just say the research shows that when you come to an aha on your own, which are quite powerful, when you're reading and you have an aha on your own, something, something about in your community, even though you're reading about someone else's community or you're reading about some uh, some family issue or whatever, by analogy, you come to your own insight about something. That's that's very powerful. But it turns out they've actually had people also. Um, uh, go through experiments where they reveal an insight and show that even when you reveal an insight to somebody, uh, when there's a leap, when there's sort of a, a leap of, of intuition that goes on, uh, even when you present it to people and don't and don't um, allow them to come to it on their own, there still is a surge of reward, not as much. So, uh, so I think that's 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 the key thing. What you what you're touching on, I think, is back to uh, thinking for impact. For me, um, the insights come through nurturing the unconscious or the subconscious, nurturing not what's not not what's on your mind. You know, I know you've written about this, but meditation. I'm a meditator. Exercise, sleep. Um, in my mind, just think, let's take meditation, for example. In my mind, there's a quieting that goes on in meditation. And the key thing that is the quieting is of the conscious thoughts. All these thoughts that have just got their, got their hooks into you because of the, the naughty problem you're trying to deal with when you're writing or trying to express or trying to engage others. And, the, and, and, and where, where does the insight come from? Well, the insight comes from what Mark Beeman, I interviewed Mark for the for my book, uh, he calls from the dim and distant connections, and 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 I love his metaphor. Okay, so um, you might have read about it in the book. His metaphor was: it's kind of like looking for a very faint star at night. How do you see the faintest stars out there? You can't see them by looking directly for them. And why is that? Because it's only the corner of your eye that has the cones necessarily to absorb very very dim light. So he said the analogy is the same when you're when you're talking about thinking. It's how do you find a how do you how do you find an insight in the corner of your mind? Well, you you know you don't look directly for it. You have to allow the dim and distant to come out. And and I and I believe 
that comes out when you quiet all the conscious thinking where you've been going through the permutations and you've been going through the analysis and you you you've been setting up your matrices etc and and all of that's terrific but what's the what's the power of the brain this is the power over ai today what is the remaining power and that is the dim and distant coming together in ways that are absolutely surprising but they only surface when you're not looking at them um, I, yeah. uh, I, there's a whole other example of this. Stop me if I go on too long for each of these S's, but there's a whole other example that I really like that there was a study done, this probably 15 years ago, where um, a bunch of students were asked to assess the uh, which apartment of four apartments was the best that they would like to live in. And it, it was rigged so that two of the apartments was kind of middle of the road. One was clearly better and one was uh, clearly the worst. And but but, you know, there was a lot of complicating factors, but and they were given 12 factors like noise level, uh, convenience to the bakery, et cetera, to 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 evaluate on those apartments. And and uh, what did we find out that there was a, there were three groups, a control group. I can't remember exactly how they were structured, but then there was a group that was allowed to work on that problem for 10 minutes. They could look at the 12 factors. They could try to weigh them one against the other and then come up with what the best apartment was. And then there was a group that was completely distracted for those 10 minutes. They had to do math problems and, and they couldn't think a thing about those 12 factors or four apartments. And who do you think got all the apartment um, choices right? It was the people were distracted for 10 minutes. In other words, their brain had worked on that unconsciously and come to the right solution. It had it had sorted that out. And I'm a big believer in that, letting your brain sort things out. And I'm you know, sleep in the morning and meditation and exercise. And I think all of those are ways to to uh, nurture the unconscious. So that, to that to me, that's that's where insights come from. Because because that's your that's your job, you know, yeah. Translating the lead into the the gold nugget. I got one, two more S's. One's keep it social, and that's put some humanity in it. Just to to um, to put it briefly, and the last one is keep it story driven. And I keep it story driven. I mean, there's an awful lot written on how important it is to to write stories to trans translate uh, what you're saying into a cause effect. Um, situation that has human, hum, humans in it do, that are trying to do things that struggle, that come to realizations, et cetera. And that is extremely powerful. But what I like to say is that's kind of like the symphony of all the techniques you, you want to use to to communicate with others, to engage others. Um, there's there's seven other things you can do that all pretty much go into a great story. And each each one of those on their own can be very powerful. Just keeping it simple or keeping it specific, as we were discussing earlier. All those things can be very, very powerful. So they allow you in a more stepwise framework to to apply in, in that second draft when you go, God, it's just it's just not quite there. No, you don't. Yeah, a story would be a great idea. But what if you don't have a story? You've got seven other S's that you can amplify people's cognition with. Fantastic. And uh, I've got to say, one of the things that I'm thinking as a, since one of my uh, roles is as a professional speaker, that everything all applies to speaking as well. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and let me. You've said writing for impact, but uh, speaking for impact would be everything would be just as applicable. Yes, yes. And, and, and I think what you're referring to is the part in the book where I learned this is fortuitous for me is that whether people listen or whether they're reading, they 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 um, process meaning the meaning of the words in the same part of the brain. It doesn't make any difference. And the other thing is that it tr it translates across languages. People in every language process the same kinds of stuff in the same place same places in the brain. So all this applies not just to 
not just the people writing English, but any language, and um, it applies to to any subject. So those are fantastic uh, lessons, Bill. It's really um, really valuable to uh, get those condensed. You know, I believe very much in the the value of studying the neuroscience so that we can actually get some proper insights into how we work. And it's, I, I think it's a real service to have uh, dug into that to enable us to write for impact, which as you suggested earlier, means that we do have to be thinking better. So right. uh, so I presume you can get it uh, as the saying goes at any book, good bookstore. That's, that's uh, absolutely right. And uh, how else can people uh, find you online, Bill? Yeah, BillBurchard.com. Uh, you can find me there. In fact, there's a sort of what you might call a Cliff Notes version of, of what's in the book right there online. And uh, I also, if if people buy their book and they, they send me their sales receipt, I also have a workbook, which has a bit more color and a few more diagrams. It's kind of fun. Um, I'm happy to email people that too. Fantastic. So much. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Bill. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.